prepared to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show for Wednesday, March 8th. Today, we're going to be talking about the American Rorschach test, and that's January 6th, 2021. So recently, Tucker Carlson on Fox News released additional footage, things that have not been seen before. But like so much in our polarized country, in this polarized America, no one sees that information the same way. And it doesn't really matter whether you're looking at Jacob Chansley, who was a man wearing a Viking headdress and body paint and parading around with an American flag, or you're looking at uh, Tariq Johnson, who's a former Capitol Police officer, suspended and then eventually resigned from his, his job for wearing a red MAGA hat on the same day. Uh, one of them was clearly a Trump supporter. The other was actually a Biden voter. And yet both of them got pretty awful treatment. And I think a lot of it has to do with the polarization that's going on in this country, the way that we are looking at these things. The way that you look at the events on January 6, 2021, likely is an indicator on how you see the rest of the political landscape. Um, was it a riot? Was it an insurrection? I'd like everybody to kind of have a unified position in to say that they when, when they look at the events, they make sense within their own mind, that they eliminate cognitive dissonance and decide based not just on their assumptions, but on the facts and, and have pos defensible positions that help them establish a way to talk to their neighbors about it that can be defended from all sides. I actually just got out of a Twitter space not too long ago, and that was the topic of conversation. I was being assailed from People on the on the left stating, you know, that I had certain assumptions, and the only way they can do that, if your position is reasonable and justified, is by putting words in your mouth. So we have to be cautious about what people are saying, actually, and listen to what the words are, and are those the words that we actually are willing to commit to. Uh, additionally, we're going to cover the arrest of some Antifa activists down in Atlanta. We're going to cover the murder and kidnapping of United States citizens in Brownsville, Texas, near the border. Um, there's some things that are being discussed as far as the response to this type of behavior, this sort of violence that we're seeing spilling even over into our side of the country. And our elected representatives are resistant to do something about it. They are making either unjustified calls for invasion or they are you know, defending the actions of inaction by the Biden administration. I want to kind of cover some of those topics. We're going to read them through the news and, and kind of get to them. But let's start off right away. What is a Rorschach test? What in the heck is that thing? These are those classic ink blot tests that people have been showing for a long time. I'm going to see if I can pull one up here. If you're not on our Rumble channel, you can always look it up on your own and take a peek. A, a Rorschach test is an ink blot that has been used. I'm going to just read straight out of here as a definition. It's a projective psychological test in which the subject's perceptions of ink blots, again, sort of like ink that is put on a folded piece of paper and squished over, it's, they're almost always symmetrical. They're recorded and then analyzed for psychological interpretation, complex algorithms, or both. What does that mean? It means that they're going to try to determine people's personality traits and some of the characteristics and emotional functioning based on the way that they look at essentially a randomly squished out uh, ink on a piece of paper. And whether that thing is valuable or not, I think that it is uh, sort of an, an indication that we bring our own assumptions and biases to you know, an inanimate object, something that has a truth about it, which is that it, it may be nothing. Uh, and by looking at that thing and our projections on it, it's supposed to tell us a little bit about us. January 6th does that in a political way for the American people right now. 
there's no question about it that there are two views of it, and uh, and the nuanced positions are far fewer, and they are far um, less widely held. I would say we've got half the country that calls it a riot, uh, that talks about that there was a protest that devolved into a riot. That's actually probably the more accurate statement for most of the people on the political right. And the political left is dead set on it being an insurrection, an attempt to overthrow our government. You'll hear people crying about it. We care more about democracy than you do, obviously. They obviously are better human beings. They're making a moral argument and that this was some sort of an attempt at throwing the country into chaos so that you know the election would not stand. Uh, I've talked to people that were at January 6th. I've talked to people who have investigated people who were there. I don't think that it, it bears any credibility. It doesn't hold any of the weight that uh, that they would like it to, that anybody was trying to overthrow the United States government. And there's a reason why it's been such a tenuous argument when it comes to the federal cases that are being argued about it. On top of that, and probably more importantly, um, there is a, a pretty strong problem with um, trying to pin this on President Trump. Now, I do think that the, the people that have been attacked that showed up at January 6th and are being prosecuted pretty aggressively in a way that is not common for the federal government. I think that that is happening because they are serving as a proxy for Trump. But I actually had someone argue directly uh, last night that not only was it an insurrection, but it's Trump's fault for the insurrection that he was the one that was so-called commanding the troops. And I, I mentioned that he's not the proximate cause of what went on that day, because if he was, and it was something that could be proven, then they would have tried to argue that in court, and they have not. So I'm going to uh, transfer over to a another uh, page here. We're going to read an article from Miranda Devine. Miranda Devine, obviously a friend of the Suspendables and an excellent writer. She has a piece in the New York Post that was dated uh, from two days ago. January 6th footage shows Capitol cops escorting QAnon Shaman through the Senate floor. And there's some interesting things in here, I think, when we when we scroll through the footage. It says, newly revealed footage from January 6th, this is obviously the Tucker Carlson release, shows the Capitol Police officers escorting Jacob Chansley, the behorned so-called QAnon shaman, who has come to symbolize the riot. Now, for those of you who recall when it first came out, that was one of the early pictures that the media fixated on. The man had body paint on like he was going to a professional football game. He's wearing like this fuzzy coonskin hat with horns on it. Uh, his body is painted and tattooed. He's obviously shirtless and uh, wearing some kind of like loincloth deal or some, I don't remember what the pants were, but he's got tribal tattoos. And, you know, that came to symbolize the sort of anarchy in the mind of the left that this guy was basically trying to overthrow the United States government. It's an interesting take. I think it's fully insane and, and the the facts do not back this up. So as uh, our previous guest, Stephen Friend mentioned, there is no uh, ultra super secret ability to overthrow the United States government by getting a behorned shirtless man into the seat of the, the Speaker of the House on the House floor. That doesn't exist on the backside of the Constitution. Uh, you know, you can watch National Treasure again, and it's it's not there. Even if Nicholas Cage told us it was, that was a fiction. There is not a place in the United States Constitution that says, if you get your guy into this place, like, ta-da, king me, and then he now takes over the government. And this was a discussion that I got into last night as well. Even if, let's say that the the worst possibilities that have been alleged about the, the rioters that were on you know, on the Capitol grounds and made it into the United States Capitol. Let's say they actually got 
whatever their worst mission was. They were able to execute members of Congress, members of the Senate. They were able to take out the vice president and hang him, all, which some people were yelling, apparently. Let's say all those things did happen. The government would persist. The United States government would carry on. There is actually an entire office devoted to the continuity of the federal government. Um, they've made shows about it, like uh, Designated Survivor and things like this. But essentially, whenever most of the important members of the United States government and you know, the elected representatives get together, there is always a plan for that thing not existing anymore. If they were to wipe off the, the United States Capitol off the face of the map with a kinetic strike while the president was giving the State of the Union address, somebody would be able to continue on and be able, there's a line of succession and it's well documented and that person is well defended and they would be able to continue and make decisions on behalf of the federal government and it would it would carry on. Um, there's entire bunkers and, and storehouses and, and there's a significant amount of equipment and money that is dedicated to making sure that that happens. Uh, I used to be stationed at Kirtland Air Force Base. There is a big center for the continuity of government in the state of New Mexico. They've got bunkers, they've got radios, they've got fuel to last for an incredibly long period of time. I used to watch trucks driving into these hollow mountains that were on the, the southern side of the Sandia mountain range, um, all part of the Kirtland Air Force Base territory. Uh, but you can find these pictures of these these um, these huge doors that they could drive you know, two semis side by side into, one coming out, one coming in usually. And uh, you can find them on satellite maps. You can literally go to the Kirtland Air Force Base um, on a map on Google Earth. You can scroll down to the east side of that particular Air Force Base and then start moving your way down the mountain range. And when you get to the southernmost mountains, uh, there are two peaks basically that are pretty low and they look like they might even be man-made. Um, when you get up in the air and you fly in a, in a Blackhawk, you can actually look down and they look very unlike the others. Um, I don't know if that's a natural feature or if we just built those things up, but uh, there's doors in them on both sides. And in, on, on the south side, on the, the east and on the west, um, the north continues on in the range. But as you look at those things, you can see like there's, there's big doorways and they have an enormous bunker and vault. Um, and in fact, when I was first assigned to Kirtland Air Force Base, and I think it was 2011, there was this big story. Uh, it was a, a scandal really that the somebody had been siphoning off access to JP8, which is the, the jet propulsion fuel that the Air Force uses and stockpiles, you know, for this sort of continuity of government, for continuity of military operations in the case of a, a big strike. And they had these enormous tanks that were underground and all these tanks were, you know, supposed to have a certain amount of fuel and they've been holding on to it since World War II and they cycle it in and so on. And there was some ungodly amount of it missing. I mean, it was like, Five million barrels or something crazy. I don't. We'll have to look up the numbers. It doesn't really matter. And uh, the whole, the whole, you know, base was a Twitter of who had stolen all this this fuel. And then uh, it turns out they did some some um, X rays of the of the actual tanks and found out that they were all leaking. And so like the water was full of JP eight and that there was uh, arsenic and other sort of poisons that were built into the base water supply and had been for probably since you know fifty years or so. So. Um, you know, these things exist. I the, the evidence of them exists in these weird little stories like that. Uh, there's a story about uh, the day before the Branch Davidian compound 
uh, went up in flames. There was this doomsday plane. It's a 747 or a 757 that had landed for some additional work. And it, it had nothing to do with anything that was going on in Waco. But there's a base out there that actually serviced this particular continuity of government plane, which is supposed to be resistant to EMT, EMPs and, and other sort of nuclear attacks. And they can put somebody up in it and fly it around for a long time. And so all these things exist so that you can't have a QAnon shaman pop in and uh, and destroy the federal government with his uh, with his Viking helmet. Uh, it's just it's just not the way that things are supposed to work. Uh, there's some interesting things that were revealed, I think, by Tucker Carlson when he showed that video. Um, the most interesting to me was that he mentions it was nine to one, and I think it was actually ten to one in my count. But there's times when this guy uh, Jacob Chansley is walking down hallways with you know, massively outnumbered by, by the Capitol police. And in this case, like before he got to the, the floor of, I believe it was the house, but it, he might've been going through the door into the Senate. Um, it, there's like 10 officers there and they could have easily grabbed him and arrested him if that was something that they were interested in doing. And by the way, he was not in the eye range of anybody that was with him. He was all by himself, just walking around uh, with his bullhorn and with his little, you know, spear device that had an American flag on it and shirtless and his Viking helmet. He's just cruising around the Capitol. And so, if that is not exculpatory evidence, and I believe it is, if that wasn't exculpatory uh, and it wasn't shown to this guy and his defense team, and I don't know who his, his uh, attorneys were, whether they were going to be um, public defenders or whether he was able to have something sourced privately, but you know that sounds like he was denied due process. Uh, if you're not familiar with what that process looks like, Whenever the government brings a case against you, you have a right to mount a credible defense. And one of the things that you have a right to is what's referred to as Brady material. Brady material is things that would be detrimental to the government's case. And it comes from a Supreme Court decision from 1963, Brady versus Maryland. Every law enforcement officer knows this. Anybody who's ever produced discovery knows that you have to provide Brady. And uh, generally speaking, if there's a significant amount of Brady material, there uh is no reason to bring the case. If there is something that actually gives a reasonable doubt in the mind of the prosecutor, they won't even bring the case because the minute you provide it, and in this case, I think this is pretty significant. There's a bunch of cops letting this guy into different areas of the building. And at the very least, it would it would raise a plausible defense uh, because the government has to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. So all you have to do is create the so-called shadow of a doubt. And I would say that seeing a bunch of cops letting this guy roll around inside the Capitol definitely gives me pause. And it would probably give you pause if you were a reasonable juror, although I don't think that was what was going on in uh, Washington, D.C. during any of these trials. But a reasonable juror should look at this information and they should have a reasonable doubt. They should have a shadow of a doubt that this guy may not be guilty beyond um, you know, all, all question, because why was he allowed in there? Um, and, and once you introduce that question, um, it can dramatically change the result, I think, of, a, of an honest jury. So does this guy get a mistrial? Does he get a uh, does he get a appeal based on this that's going to somehow move it into another venue where reasonable people can look at it and say, we've got more questions? I actually had somebody on Twitter in, in my DMs send me a, a video supposedly of him entering the building. And that's a question, you know. Tucker Carlson doesn't quite answer. There's some debate about what happened. It looks like some doors were pushed open, but it looked like they were open from the inside. They appear to have big magnetic locks on them. And we've had discussions about magnetic locks. Um, you know, my friends have who were around January 6th investigations. I know people in the public have had the same sort of questions. You know, who opened the doors? 
they're really like magnetic locks are incredibly hard to open and generally speaking are not something you can open if you're just a person and you don't have breaching tools. And so if those things were opened and allowed to be opened, now you would have the argument that not only was he allowed in, but then he was guided around. Uh, that would be a serious wound to any governmental case for the sort of charges that he had. Uh, as Tucker Carlson mentions, they sort of look like they're acting like tour guides. They're showing him different places around. Um, the video footage is short and it's cherry picked. There's no doubt about it. So this is not a conclusive answer, but what it should do is put enough shadow of a doubt that if we are honest people who want to see, you know, bad guys who, who knocked cops out, go to jail and people who walked around and paraded in the building, maybe inappropriately, um, slapped on the wrist and let go. This guy got 41 months in jail. That's a long time in federal prison, considering some of the things that happen when people don't do it. And he'll have to serve, I believe, 80 or 85% of that. So that's going to be a significant chunk. You know, it's 10% of his life. He's 33 years old when this goes down. Uh, that seems like a big problem. So that's one of the things that I think is uh, the, the obvious Rorschach test. When people look at that, uh, there were people that were on television, like network anchors and, and guests on these panels sitting and saying, shoot that man. You know, you should he should have been killed for the actions that he did. And... They're not going to change their opinion based on what they saw with the Tucker Carlson footage. They're not going to change it at all. Uh, that being said, I want to move to the other guy that was in there. This this name was brought up to me at the first time I heard it was two days ago. Um, friend who works in a in a uh, think tank in D.C. mentioned that this was going to be happening, and so I wanted to be aware of it. So I'm going to bring it up. I'm going to actually play you the video, um, and his name is uh, Tarek or Tarek Johnson, rather. We're going to play it from Tucker Carlson's quick interview, and then we're going to discuss like how people see that differently. So here it is, and let's get it going right now. Maybe. <laughs> of course, the internet's not going to agree with me. So this is a police officer who had been suspended from the Capitol Police. He was there on January 6th. We're going to see a little bit of footage of him. And uh, he mentions that he wore a red MAGA hat on that day. And that that was probably a life-saving thing for him. Here he is. Important as not getting the members of Congress and their staff to safety. Footage we reviewed seems to bolster Johnson's account. The video shows Johnson conducting the evacuation of senators from the chamber. Yet Tarek Johnson was not rewarded for what he did. He was punished. A photo emerged of Johnson wearing a MAGA hat outside the Capitol. So that picture hat. cost him his career. Sometimes I look at it and like, thank you, God, for blessing me with this hat. And sometimes I'm like, wow, I wish this hat never came in my life. A Biden voter, Johnson says he donned the hat in an effort to rescue fellow officers he believed were trapped in the building. I figured if I had the hat on, it would be easier for me to navigate my way through the crowd. It was. So what we're seeing right now in this footage is that uh, essentially... This guy, uh, Tarek Johnson, is is walking up the steps of the Capitol and people are moving out of the way and they're being very deferential to him. He's wearing a police uniform, which I guess could be a problem. Um, you'd have to make a pretty strong argument that people would not have listened to uh, a police officer walking up there. But it's a it's a at least a perspective that I think is defensible, having been in big crowds and in a, a non-uniform role and then seeing guys in uniform roles, you do get treated differently. And he's just moving in. He's got this red MAGA hat on that's uh, you know, it's ill-fitting and people are getting out of the way and letting him up there. And he said he did it for a reason that makes perfect sense as a law enforcement officer that he is trying to fulfill his duties by getting into the building, getting up where he needs to be, and then evacuating members um, of the either the House or the Senate. And we're going to see some footage of him in a second 
walking people out of the uh, the Senate chambers, I believe. Basically, self-preservation and um, de-escalation, um, and I needed to get up those steps. I couldn't say what would have happened walking through that crowd without it. But for the crime of wearing a Trump hat, Johnson found himself suspended. Ultimately, he resigned from the force and lost his pension. He now works part-time as a furniture mover. Yogananda Pittman, meanwhile, thrived. Two days after January 6th, Nancy Pelosi elevated Pittman to acting chief of the Capitol Police. So they've got some pretty unflattering pictures of this Yogananda Pittman. Um, she is a decidedly not fit female who is, uh, was made the acting chief. Um, you know, Tarek Johnson looks like he's a pretty fit regular dude who would be in a law enforcement role. Looks like he can probably handle himself. And unfortunately, you know, he was suspended. I think they didn't dwell on that very long. But when you get suspended from one of these jobs, uh, that's that's my status right now. So I imagine he was suspended without pay in the same way. I'm actually uh, in, con- in contact with him, and I'm going to try to see if we can have him on the podcast. I'd like to have him tell his whole story in a much longer form. Having been on Tucker Carlson, it's a big audience, and there's no reason not to do it. But uh, unfortunately, the amount of time you get on television is very short. Even if they give you a longer segment, it's only for a few moments. And I bet we can get into a pretty interesting story about a man that uh, experienced some bad treatment. Uh, it's mentioned that he's a Biden voter. So I think we'll talk about that in just a second here. But um, once again, people who act a certain way got a certain look, and that look was all that it takes for people to treat them in very, very different ways, despite this guy having the same politics of probably the people that that suspended him. Late last year, Pittman took a high-paying job as the head of security at UC Berkeley, which is right outside Pelosi's congressional district. Berkeley announced Pittman's hiring with unqualified praise for her, quote, steadfast commitment to social justice. Pittman herself boasted about her heroic performance on January 6th. Her department, she said, quote, saved democracy that day. All right, that's probably enough of that. Um, what that tells us, though, and I think it's it's one of those telling pieces, save democracy is an awesome statement. Um, it's a thing that I heard from people on the left in these uh, Twitter space debates, which I've been involved in them going back to the original Twitter files drop, going back pretty much as far as I've been on social media. And there is a, this this statement that we're better people than you and uh, and we care more about democracy than you. And you know, the whole point of what happened at January 6th, I believe, I, I wasn't there, but the people that I've talked to, I believe that their intentions were pure enough that they thought there was something utterly wrong with the election that we had in 2020. And they were there protesting it. And they were there letting people know that they were dissatisfied with the fact that there wasn't a credible response from federal law enforcement. I have, to have a little bit more information about that, knowing that people like the Washington field office did not do those investigations the way that they probably should have. And they removed people that they believed might be Trump voters. Uh, there's a good example of a man who had something like nine children or seven children, um, a, a Catholic guy who you know had a big family. And they immediately assumed based on his family and his religion that he was obviously a Trump supporter. And therefore he was removed by this now infamous uh, ASAC, a, a guy named Timothy Tebow who didn't want any filthy Trump supporters on this squad. This guy had over a decade of experience investigating election crimes. So those are the people that you want doing that. And when that didn't happen, and you know, those of us inside the bureau were asking those questions in January of 2021. It's like, who's doing the investigations? Why are there not investigations? Why are we not reassuring the American people that we are doing things in the right way at the right time? And the answer was always kind of like shut up in color. 
I had a supervisor that went to the mat and, and asked somebody, this is the woman who ended up actually uh, taking my security clearance, a woman named Jennifer Moore. He went and asked her the questions, you know, on behalf of my squad, we're, con we're concerned. What is going on with these investigations? And the response that we got back was not satisfactory. There was no information, but he seemed like he'd basically been put in his place. And then shortly thereafter, he received a transfer to the place he wanted to go. He was able to leave Washington, D.C., and, um, and he was out. Um, it was a little bit after the time that I left. So he got his office, you know, transfer about, uh, maybe two months after I did. And that was the end of it. And I, I just, I never felt like there was a satisfactory answer given to even the people that investigate and know the other investigators. So that seems like a real problem. Um, I want to also read this little piece here from, um, from daily wire. This is uh, Ryan Saavedra and, um, it says ex Capitol Hill cop says supervisors went silent during January 6th riot and donning the MAGA hat cost him his career. I'm not so much interested in the hat, although I think that they would just basically make the argument that it was a hatch act violation, that he made a political statement on duty. Uh, as somebody who's been in these big crowds, I've been in all black and I've done, you know, had a black bandana on when it was appropriate to walk around and be unobserved that way. Obviously I was in a plain clothes role, so a little bit different animal, but sometimes you have to adapt to the environment for safety. And so his claim would have to be like really aggressively refuted. And it sounds like his voting history doesn't show that he was going to make that statement. So it's, it's a really nasty thing that they did based on maybe just optics. Again, that Rorschach test, that instant knee jerk reaction, you have a MAGA hat on, you are the enemy of our group here. And our group here is, I guess, this pro-Democrat, um, you know, establishment situation. What's also interesting is, is today we found out, um, or yesterday rather, we found out that um, that Mitch McConnell came down on the side of the Capitol Police Chief and stated that this release of these videos was very uh, dangerous. I'll actually read you from his thing. But uh, he seems to be walking this party line that, uh, you know, the chief of the Capitol Police, that Mitch McConnell, that others in the in the leftist media, you know, talking point crowd have all been saying the same thing. And that thing that they are saying is, is that it's really irresponsible to release this footage, that it's cherry picked and dangerous, and that it's going to give away national security secrets. And all those are essentially absurd. If they were being honest, this would have all been released under the January 6th committee that went on for all of last year through that theater. And the most important part of it, it at least from my position is they should have been giving exculpatory evidence to the people who are being charged. It's, it's abhorrent. And then the last thing is, is that that unselect committee or the select committee, but I guess Trump calls it unselect. I think that's funny. They didn't actually address the real security failures. Like who is to blame for the fact that they were not enough riot police and other, you know, capable law enforcement entities on the day on January 6th. Where the heck were they? I've made a, a consistent argument for the last probably four or five months in public, and I haven't been in public that long, so that's most of the time that I've been there, that that event should have been listed as an NSSE. Um, apparently, Dan Bongino did a, a whole podcast about this, and I would encourage you, if you haven't heard it, to go look that up as well. An NSSE is a National Special Security Event. It is by law and by statute run by the Secret Service and... It is uh, managed by DHS under executive orders and under federal law, like under the Code of Federal Regulations. And what that means is that they are the quarterback so that there is one primary agency and everybody else jumps in on it. Um, that means DC Metro PD would jump in on it. The Capitol Police would jump in on it. The FBI, the ATF. I'm trying to think of what the other entities, U.S. Marshals would be there. You would have a Department of Energy. 
you would have um, the Department of the Interior under the U.S. Uh, Park Police, because uh, most of the National Mall is considered uh, national park space. So all of these entities would all get together. They have a big command post and they deconflict and they send out investigative teams and they put boats in the water. They put helicopters in the sky and they do it really big. And they do it all the time in DC. And one of the reasons why people like it is because there's a lot of money. There's a lot of money to be able to pay the overtime of the uh, the local police department. So they're 100% on board for it. And, you know, that also helps out because people can work overtime in some of the other federal services as well. So we're going to read this article real quick from, uh, from Daily Wire. Um, I've got two Daily Wire articles here today. This one says a fired Capitol police officer who helped evacuate the Capitol during the January 6th riot said the supervisors went dark or went silent on the radio and that he put on the hat in order to get to where he was going. He thought the crowd was hostile and therefore he pushed through it. Um, so Tarek Johnson, again, told Fox News, uh, that his bosses seemed ill-prepared for the riot. Once again, this like lack of preparation is not common for a place that sees protests and including unruly protests, and maybe not on a daily basis, but on a weekly and certainly on a monthly basis. There are a lot of protests that happen in DC. Most of them are unscripted, and usually there's some sort of announcement or social media awareness that they will happen. He said he was trying to evacuate the Senate side of the building as the crowd became increasingly hostile, but couldn't get an answer, much less authorization um, that sounds like the supervisors basically panicked, went into what we'd call vapor lock, I think, and uh, and didn't deal with this. So um, he said, I, I was the person that thought I was going to, uh, he said, the person that I thought was going to authorize the evacuation didn't do it. They just stopped responding. Um, in the fog of war, in a chaotic situation, what you often find, and this is something that I've been, I've dealt with as a surveillance guy, where we were doing an operation on something that was a sensitive target. We knew there was going to be a lot of scrutiny over it. And what you would do is you'd ask for something and the answer was nothing coming back, which was essentially saying, do what you think is best. And that's what he did in this case. So he was fired because he was seen in this picture and the picture, if you saw the website here, as we pulled it up on the rumble channel, um, you know, he's got this MAGA hat sitting on his head and a mask. He's got a face mask on. And, um, you know, that's not a very right wing position these days, but for whatever it is, he says, uh, according to daily wire, he says he voted for Joe Biden in 2020. And that his only priority there, because this is actually the sworn duty of Capitol Police, was to get members of Congress and their staff to safety. And the security footage that Tucker played basically corroborated that. So it's it's hard to find fault with someone doing that. But once again, if you are, are looking at anybody in a MAGA hat as an enemy, then that's what you're going to see. I want to read the response to the Tucker videos. And obviously, both of these things are part of the videos um, that that came out. Uh, this is the from the desk of the chief. So we'll transition over here. This is coming off the Twitter feed of one of the reporters. I don't know who this reporter is here. I'd like to give credit if possible. Uh, investigative reporter for ABC News has this uh, particular thing. So here we go. This is a letter from the desk of the chief to be read at all roll calls and posted on all bulletin boards. And it's entitled Truth and Justice. It's signed by uh, J. Thomas Manger, who is the chief of police for the Capitol Police. So I'm going to skim through some of this. I'm not going to hit all of it, but it says last night, an opinion program, I guess that's Tucker Carlson, aired commentary that was filled with offensive and misleading conclusions about the January 6th attack. Remember the Rorschach test. We're back to this thing. He has to see it one way. So everything he's going to do is going to be framed that way. Quote, the opinion program never reached out to the department to provide accurate context. End quote. I don't think that matters. Like who cares? It's video. It's video footage. The video footage shows what it shows. And then Tucker Tarleton 
you know, he's a pretty intelligent guy and he describes it in a way that I think is accurate to what the video showed. His conclusions to it are not inaccurate. Um, they may be incomplete, but they're not wrong. That's certainly the truth. It says one false allegation. This one's kind of uh, frustrating to the suspendable crew. One false allegation is that our officers help the rioters and act as tour guides. This is outrageous and false. This department stands by the officers in the videos that were shown last night. I don't have to remind you how outnumbered our officers were on January 6th. Well, whose fault is that? That seems like a thing that should be addressed. That should, like we failed you, would be the a thing that a real chief would take, especially because he wasn't even the guy that was in charge on that day. He said, I don't have to remind you how outnumbered our officers were. Those officers did their best to use de-escalation tactics to try to talk to rioters into getting each other to leave the building. Okay, and then they use the cherry picking claim because we're just going to do leftist talking points here. And then this is really interesting because the medical examiner's report on on Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick said that he died of natural causes and then made this sort of illogical jump. And, and you know, this is not a thing that would be, I, I don't understand how this, this uh, coroner put this down, but wrote that it was likely also contributed uh, by the events that he took part in on January 6th. Well, either it was natural causes or it wasn't. Um, it's not relevant that, you know, we all die of living. Living is one of those things that you don't get out the other side of um, with everything intact. And so I would say that everybody who dies of natural causes did so based on the events of their life. This, uh, this commentary on there. So anyway, he, he was ruled a line of duty death. I have to believe that that was something that was done to help his family. And I think that's fine. Um, you know, giving him a line of duty death, but then they created this false narrative. So here's what it says. Finally, this is a quote from the chief again. The most disturbing accusation from last night was that our late friend and colleague, Brian Sicknick's death, had nothing to do with his heroic actions on January 6th. That's what natural causes means, by the way. That means it had nothing to do with January 6th, like his life lived. Um, I think that the, the whole idea that he had strokes, I don't know if they were hemorrhagic strokes, maybe that would lead to that, but that would not be a natural causes. That'd be traumatic. And if the, the strokes ended up being something that were um, obstructive, if he had a, um, what do they call it? Ischemic stroke that basically led to stopping blood moving around, then what would that have to do with January 6th either? It just, what would it have to do with getting bear sprayed and getting hit in the head with a fire extinguisher when you had a helmet on? It's, it's, it's not logical, but this is the, you know, they're defending their perspective because they don't need facts. They don't need, you know, they don't need accuracy. They just need emotions. And the emotion is he was one of ours, which I sort of understand. It says the department maintains as anyone with common sense would, well, we might argue there, that had Officer Sicknick not fought valiantly for days or for hours on the day he was violently assaulted, Sicknick would not have died the next day. Um, so the department is going to say that he fought and then died because of it. But, um, you know, the medical examiner's report actually doesn't say that. And if it says that he died because of it on top of natural causes, then one of those things can be true and one cannot be. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, and I've, and I've read coroner's reports. I used to do death investigations in my last year in the bureau. Uh, and then he gives this sort of fighting statement to his, his men and women saying, you fought like hell on January 6th and you risked your life to protect the constitution and everything this country stands for. I don't think they actually keep the constitution there. That's my understanding. I thought it was a Smithsonian thing. So maybe not that, uh, you along with our law enforcement partners saved every member of Congress and their staff. Well, so there's a, a perspective. I don't think it's an accurate perspective, but that's somebody who's looking at that ink blot and they've come up with the conclusion that democracy was under attack, the constitution was at risk, 
no further information. And it doesn't really seem to be backed by, you know, that really pesky thing like facts, the possibilities of, of, of eliminating all those things really tough. Um, I want to pivot to some fun stuff that happened down in Atlanta, because I think I just learned something by watching this stuff. Um, so the background is, is that there is a, uh, a training facility that is being constructed outside of the, the city of Atlanta, and it's being called cop city from everything I can gather. And essentially there's a bunch of money that's going to go in. They're going to build up some like realistic training facilities, and then they're going to have access to it. And I'm sure state, federal, and locals will be able to go out and use it. So that all seems like a good thing. Now on paper, the left generally says that they don't like cops, but they do want better training for cops. They don't want to defund police and make them less capable, but they don't want to give police any money. So they don't have a unified position. Um, But not too long ago, maybe a month ago or so, they were clearing out these protesters who were in the area of where this cop city is going to be built, this training facility. And they were known as forest protectors, if you want to believe what CNN had to say. And one of these idiots who was in a tent or something to that effect or some sort of a temporary lodging took a pot shot at a cop who was trying to clear him out and then was uh, killed for his troubles. And uh, the, the police officer was injured. So this is not a place that's not with you know without violence. This is a obviously a contentious thing. And Atlanta is not the same place as Portland. And yet the attempts to sort of stop this thing um, are still ongoing. Now, there were 23 or so of them, uh, of these protesters were arrested the other night. I'm going to show you some video here. If you're watching the rumble footage, you're going to see it. But um, there's no there's no actual, uh, what do you call it? There's no sound to this. But this is a FLIR image from, looks like probably a helicopter and it is showing a seriously large number of people coming in. So in this case, white is hot. If you're not familiar with looking at FLIR, you're looking at a zoom in and maybe some cloud cover here, but there are maybe a hundred um, on the uh, on the right side of the picture. And then on the left side of the picture, there's probably like a half dozen or so that are creeping in. These are mostly black clad uh, males and they are marching around and they have set fire to this uh, piece of earth moving equipment or maybe a... Uh, front loader or something like that. So they had a, a expensive tractor that gets burned up. You can see the the FLIR image. It's just like burning hot. And then the cops actually backed off on this. So we've got a couple different images. Uh, one of them is from the helicopter. This one is a ground footage. You see cops basically like retreating. And uh, and they were praised for doing what they did. Uh, in other words, they weren't going to cause loss of human life. That's probably appropriate, although I don't think any of these people could replace this equipment, but there's a couple of earth moving pieces. And then it looks like the cops are in full retreat because they're literally outnumbered, man, they're outnumbered probably 15 to one or worse. And, uh, and then these clowns that are in there, these, these, uh, rider, you know, protester types have decided to go on, you know, oh man, they're all wearing black. They're all throwing rocks and stuff at this thing, trying to take down some kind of electrical system there, like a big, uh, high voltage power lines too. But yeah, just destroying. So you see the cops basically pull out and and leave that space to these uh, to these riders until they come back and enforce. And uh, this video has 1.3 million views on it. The funniest thing to me about all of it, uh, I'll just call your attention if you're watching our channel uh, on the video, the Atlanta Police Department at Atlanta underscore police is giving Ariel, not Ariel like A-E-R, but Ariel, A-R-I-E-L, like the Little Mermaid. So the response to all these people on Twitter are pictures of the Little Mermaid because they uh, they mistakenly spelled the, the word wrong. Uh, but, the, you know, the number of people that came through, and I, once again, we're just showing a loop right now for a second. The number of people there, man, that's got to be over 100. 
there are so many people cruising down inside the fence line in towards this earth moving equipment. It's pretty incredible. And I think if you have a dozen guys in a, in a couple of vehicles, like this is not the stand you want to make because the only way you do it is by just executing people wholesale. And that this probably doesn't doesn't allow for loss of life. I bet you their deadly force policy wouldn't cover it. I'm not sure that even FBI would stand behind people doing that. So it's worth noting. Um, but what I do want to also point out is this other Daily Wire article here, which I think is relevant. So we're going to show, actually, they've got some pictures of the people in broad daylight. So they're marching through this creek. I didn't realize that they're marching in. Uh, you can see how many of them there are. It says Atlanta police release aerial footage of training center rioters. So they show the footage, but this is the part that was most interesting to me. I'm going to scroll down most of the way. Said so they did about $150,000 worth of damage. That's pretty easy to imagine based on the uh, the earth moving equipment's cost and uh, having seen what those things cost, having buddies that you know that have paid that kind of money to do it. So uh, the officers uh, supposedly exercised restraint. We're seeing that in air quotes here and uh, use non-lethal enforcement to conduct the arrest of 35 people. 23 of those individuals face domestic terrorism charges. Once again, a sign Atlanta is not the same as Portland. They've now killed one of those people who was trying to kill a cop. That's uh, an interesting move. And then the second thing is you've got 23 of them facing these, uh, these felony charges for domestic terrorism, literally charged with terrorism under state statute. Pretty interesting. Um, could result in up to 35 years in prison. Um, but... The piece that was really interesting to me, and I was notified of it in multiple ways today, including people who have written books about the SPLC, the uh, far-left nonprofit Southern Poverty Law Center it confirmed that one of their employees was, in fact, arrested there. Here's where it gets interesting for me. The, I'm going to read a quote directly from the SPLC's spokesperson. Quote, an employee at the SPLC was arrested while acting and identifying as a legal observer on behalf of the National Lawyers Guild, NLG. The employee is an experienced legal observer and their arrest, it's actually his arrest, and his arrest is not evidence of any crime, but of heavy-handed law enforcement intervention against protesters. And uh, the governor, Brian Kemp, said that they will not be tolerating domestic terrorism, so that's all good. But... I think the thing that was most interesting to me, I'm going to pull up the next article if you don't mind here. This is the picture of the guy, um, and his name is Thomas Webb Jurgen. So Thomas Webb, who is a clean-cut kid, looks actually like my youngest brother, kind of interesting, also an attorney, probably also pretty left-leaning, although probably not dumb enough to get caught in something like this. Um, they, they mentioned that he was part of the National Lawyers Guild. Um, also, just sort of for those who follow Daily Wire, the best is that they talked about you know, his work with the SPLC and so on. And then if you get down to the last paragraph, they mentioned last month, an FBI whistleblower leaked a document showing the FBI was investigating radical traditional Catholics and uh, showing that they were using the SPLC as a source for naming hate groups. So another little interesting shout out. Daily Wire is still tracking what we're up to. So that's fun. But let's talk about the National Lawyers Guild. I'm going to add some, some personal flavor and spice to this. When my team was deployed to Portland in... I believe it was in September. It was either September or early October, but I'm pretty sure September of 2020. Of, yeah, 2020. We went out there and we were going to be observing the potential of federal crimes. We were not uh, necessarily assigned to a specific subject on all days, but we did have subjects that we were watching that were being accused of federal crimes that had cases against them that were in the Antifa BLM movement and part of the riot scene that was going on for 100 nights and days. And one of the things that was immediately apparent is, number one, that Antifa is not an idea. It's an organized group of people because we dealt with organized groups all the time. 
And the second thing was, is that despite the media representation that there were these like nonpartisan, you know, third party legal watchdog groups referred to as the National Lawyers Guild, that those people were actually embedded with sympathetic to and part of the Antifa organization, which was an organization. I have no qualm saying that. And there was evidence of it. And I'm going to share that evidence with you, like my personal experience. And I'm going to tell you that the FBI has it as well. All right. So the way that the National Lawyers Guild identified themselves was either with green shirts that said National Lawyers Guild on them and the big letters NLG, or they wore green hats or both. Now, one of the things that's most interesting to me is while we were on a couple of, of our surveillances, we were watching unruly protests that got really, really strange for those of us who have been in urban areas and done a lot of surveillance. The members of this, this unruly crew would send what I would call scouts out that were um, they were like parade route managers. They were on, you know, Vespas and bicycles, and they would go block off traffic and allow people to start marching. They would drive up streets the wrong way and just block things off wholesale and tell people to move around. And people did because they didn't want to run over some, you know, fat chick on a Vespa, uh, which was one of the people that we were watching, it turns out. Uh, so that being the case, they had these, these marches going all over the place. They're, you know, up and down certain streets and uh, they'd go down the wrong way, down a one way, and, and it would get blocked off by these people. Now, while we were out there observing and we'd be posted back, you know, a block or two blocks, or whatever we were watching. And sometimes we would see people that would kind of creep past our vehicles. There was one woman in particular wearing a National Lawyers Guild hat, it's a green hat. And she was very notable because she had um, sort of large breasts and no bra. I only say that because I had a bunch of dudes who were in their fifties that have no thing better to do than watch people. That's what we do all day long. And as they were watching, uh, this woman came, came up over and over again. She was, she was very obvious cause she would go running and you can just see, um, men know what I'm talking about, but we have a sixth sense for catching that sort of thing, even in like rear view mirrors. So this woman is back there. She's very, very obvious. And then she's holding like a personal FRS radio. FRS radios are easily used. They're easily bought anywhere. You can get them at a Bass Pro Shop. You can get them at a Walmart. You can get them off Amazon and so on. And the Bureau had noted before I got there that Antifa was accustomed to using FRS radios to move themselves around and to do logistical support. And this woman with the NLG hat on, who claimed to be a legal observer, that was what that statement was. That's what that hat was supposed to mean. Um, and who yelled at us about, you know, being a, you know, she was observing for people's rights was using an FRS radio to call out the license plates of the people that she believed were quote unquote feds. Uh, and that was their statement about it. Now the bureau captured all of this radio traffic. It's all, um, unencrypted and it's, it's public information cause it's just thrown across the airwaves. So they were gathering it in and recording it as evidence of the larger conspiracy that was going on in Portland, I've never heard anything done with it. I've never heard a public comment on it, and I don't ever expect to see prosecution. But what we did see was she would call out a license plate wearing her green National Lawyer Skilled hat. And then a security element from the Antifa crowd would show up wearing all black, a black block. Um, there was a woman that famously showed up that was wearing, um, <laughs> she was wearing a leather skirt or like a pleather skirt and fishnet stockings and then like a tactical vest and then four or five other guys wearing tactical vests. I don't think they had body armor in them. That wasn't my impression from looking at them, but I don't know for a fact, but they all had this like sort of silly uniform that showed them to be this sort of element. And then they came out and harassed a number of guys that were on my team and also me. 
they came out and did that to me, um, you know, later on, on a different day. So on multiple days, we witnessed this behavior. They would call out a license plate number. We would get the, uh, the command center or the command post for the FBI would call us up and say, Hey, they're calling out a license plate. looks like it's fill in the blank vehicle. You know, are one of you driving those vehicles? And in the case of like three of us, you know, a couple of people got run off. They said, go ahead and move. So you don't, you know, expose your position. So they would drive off and we've been, you know, we got chased at one point, one of my colleagues, prior Marine. Uh, now retired FBI agent was driving in a Nissan Armada, got sighted and spotted by this woman who he identified later on in our after action. And he went driving off because the license plate was burned, which is what we would say that they were, you know, they were made. So he goes driving off. He gets chased by a bunch of people on bicycles. That was the security element. And some guy on a motorcycle came up and joined them. So you have Nissan Armada, uh, five or six people on bicycles, one motorcycle, and then three federal agents in other vehicles, because we weren't going to let him just run off on his own. We were going to make sure that we stayed with him to make sure that he could safely elude them and, and go somewhere else. So we followed, you know, and they were running. He would run lights. They would run lights. They were going in against traffic wherever they needed to, to keep up with this guy. And eventually he just kind of ran them off by just sheerly out distancing them and driving in a vehicle faster. He was, you know, one brake tap away from ending this security elements day, but uh, chose not to was probably the right move. But my point is, is that there is an interesting connection that these people have the same tactics and the same support, the National Lawyers Guild in Atlanta, doing the same sort of violent Antifa BS that we saw in Portland. And I don't hear widespread calls for running them all down or prosecutions or, you know, hang all the insurrectionists when they're out there doing the same sorts of thing. These are the same people that were burning down a a uh, federal courthouse that were attacking like most of the downtown of Portland from what I could, I could see that all the windows were boarded up. I mean, it was a captive state in so many ways. And um, you just have this bizarre instinct where the left is more than happy to be very mad at a guy wearing Viking horns and other people as well, obviously who went into the Capitol that broke glass and did damage, uh, which some of those things are felonies and some of them are misdemeanors. A lot of them are probably misdemeanors. And you don't have that same outrage from them at people that are quote unquote on their team. Again, the national Rorschach test is if you look at a crime, do you call it a crime? And January 6th is sort of the differentiator between whether you do or don't. What I keep finding is that people on the right, almost all of them will look at a crime and know that it's a crime. And they say, look, you punched a cop, you should go to jail. There are some of these things that don't raise to the level of the FBI's actual investigative uh, requirements. Things that are misdemeanors are not investigated by the FBI until January 6th. So that should be a problem for all thinking and honest people, but it isn't. So we have to just kind of live in the world that we're in. It is the way that it is, but uh, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to push for good actions and good actions by our politicians and uh, by our fellow man. The last one that I want to kind of cover here is a, a really wild story of kidnapping and murder down at the Texas border. So I'm going to switch over here. We're going to pull up the Los Angeles Times and uh, I'll read it so you don't have to. But it says two kidnapped Americans found dead in Mexico, two others rescued and returned to the United States. This was written by Kate Lithicum and Patrick McDonnell um, on the 7th. Uh, so yesterday. And updated in the evening, they're, they're updating from Mexico City. I don't know why they're in Mexico City because uh, Brownsville is nowhere near that. But essentially what they're saying is that two of the four United States citizens who were kidnapped at gunpoint uh, in northern Mexico were found dead on Tuesday. And the Mexican authorities said that the other two were rescued after an intense manhunt uh, that renewed the U.S. focus on violence at the southern border. 
These things do happen every so often. They're not incredibly common for Americans to be kidnapped, uh, but they do happen. It says the Americans were located Tuesday morning in a small wooden house in a field outside of the violent border city of um, Metaporos, which I don't know that city very well, but it's just outside of Brownsville. And that the attorney general of the state there um, noted that there was one subject who had been detained, a guy named uh, Jose Guadalupe N. I don't know if they're abbreviating his last name or what, 23 years old, who was guarding the house with these two in. The two survivors who made it back home are Latavia McGee and Eric James William. Uh, both of them had, they were in a, a van apparently that had North Carolina plates and it got shot up and then two people were killed and then two people were returned recently. So I want to talk just a little bit about what that might mean and then sort of the responses to it that are, I think, interesting. What it might mean is that they were one of two things. Either they were a mistaken identity, high possibility for that. They were in a very generic white uh, Chrysler minivan and could have been mistaken for somebody else. The other possibility is that they were involved in the drug trade and that they got in some sort of skirmish and didn't understand what they were getting into on the wrong side of the border. Both of those are, are possible. Uh, I'm sure that we probably won't hear much more about it, unfortunately, because it's not a very good narrative for the Biden administration. Uh, but the FBI was called in because this was a kidnapping case and it was an international kidnapping case. So that's FBI territory. Uh, I have friends who have worked these cases down in New Mexico, um, you know, crossing the border either in the uh, in New Mexico or over the uh, Bridge of the Americas in El Paso. And generally speaking, we generally find people and they're generally alive as long as they're American citizens. And if they're not, then anything could happen. But um, in this case, it's interesting. Those names, I'm going to guess that Eric, Eric James Williams and Latavia McGee are probably black and they came from North Carolina. So I don't know what the heck they were doing down there. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't travel down there. It just means it's an interesting data point. Um, it would make mistaken identity less likely only because the people that are down in Brownsville are either Texans who uh, live in Texas. And I don't think they have a big black population down there uh, and they have a pretty high Hispanic population. So these people would probably stand out visually. I don't think they'd be as easy to mistake, but Anything could happen, and I couldn't say one way or another, but if I was leaning 60-40 on one side or the other, I'm guessing that this was probably something that we're going to find out that was a maybe a business deal gone bad. Uh, that's, that's my educated speculation on it. I'm open to being wrong shortly, and I'll correct if I am. The thing that's worth noting is the United States government should be pushing to stop this kind of thing um, on every level because we should not be allowing the cartels to run our borders. Uh, I think that uh, Dan Bongino, who I talked to today for 15 or 20 minutes, makes a very compelling case that Biden is a foreign agent, is in he is acting on behalf of foreign interests, not that he is a spy or doing some sort of espionage, but that fact that he is actually using his influence um, to keep these borders open. And there's some compelling interest, uh, compelling coincidences, we'll call them, that indicate that the uh, cartels are throwing money into the Biden crime family, as it's called, you know, but the sort of the Hunter Biden experience, they're moving money into that pot through some third parties, uh, these narco states that exist in Eastern Europe. That's all really troubling stuff, if that's the case. There's, like I said, there's some coincidences that need to be explained and are, are pretty troubling. And the Biden administration is not helping themselves by leaving such an open border and leaving these spaces open. Now, there's a left and a right argument against allowing these borders to be open in this way and allowing the cartels to have this sort of American territory that they can control. The, the right-wing version of it is a law and order version. It's uh, conserving the values of and saying that we don't want people invading our sovereign nation. I think that's pretty strong. But even on the left, it's resulting in a lot of 
human suffering on the people that are generally compassionate speaking liberal types, you know, there's a, a fairly strong argument stating that you're moving people from one captive environment to another. They're coming here and they're being trafficked either for labor or for sex. Um, they're coming in here and they have no access to law enforcement. Many of them don't speak uh, English and they don't know what the rules are living in America. And they end up victims of some sort of organized crime syndicate, whether it be MS-13 or 18th Street, you know, or whatever. Um, these groups are are working to bring people over because then they have more people to do whatever it is that they are, you know, either extorting or uh, trafficking and so on. So neither of these things are good. Now, there's been some arguments about talking, you know, there's senators that are mouthing off about we should, you know, name the drug cartels as uh, terrorist organizations and then be able to unlock some military tools. I think generally speaking, that's probably a good idea. And then there's this little pushback saying, well, we shouldn't do it because it will open up asylum claims in the United States. If you listened to our podcast with Aaron Stevenson and with Tara Rhodes uh, a week ago Monday, you will know that the Biden administration is already looking to open those floodgates up and allow asylum officers to make the decision instead of um, immigration judges. And if that rule goes into fruition, if it actually happens, then what we are going to see is a floodgate that makes no difference whether or not we call the uh, cartels domestic terrorists, that people are going to be getting their asylum claims granted at a rate of about 85% if the numbers hold, and there's no reason to think that they won't. So I'm going to just, once again, circle back to this thing. Like we look at the border, the border is just another thing that if you probably believe that January 6th was a riot, then you probably want them to close the border. And if you think that January 6th was an insurrection, then the border being open is good because we're such humanitarians. This Rorschach test is not going away. Uh, it is an easy way for us to analyze and look at each other in one single event. And sadly, it shows exactly how divided America is. And that is just a, just a crying shame at this point. Um, all that being said, I hope that we figure out our, our differences sooner than later and that we can start seeing some common ground because this is not a sustainable position. And I don't know that it goes into 2024 in a way that... Um, that doesn't involve more of these dust-ups like we saw on January 6th because so many people are getting fed up. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. I hope that you would please consider subscribing to our show if you haven't already. Just push that button on either Rumble, on Apple, on Spotify, on iHeartRadio, or wherever it is that you are listening to our show. And if you did enjoy what you had to hear, please share this content with a friend, maybe two, maybe 50 if you got 50 friends. You might be more popular than I am. Um, it's always appreciated. It helps us grow both the audience and the number of people who have access to some of the first-hand source information, some of the inside baseball that I'm able to share with you and a lot of our really good guests that come in on Monday. And uh, we do appreciate your feedback. If you have an opportunity to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we do appreciate that as well. We're up to 260-something last time I checked, and I can't access them because I don't have Phil here for me. But uh, generally speaking, if you are listening to our podcast, you'll see producer Phil Give us a live read of one of those. So uh, we'll make sure we get that done on Friday's show. You've been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.